the most challenging moments in my life have really made me the human that I am today. It's not when things were easy or things were just in perfect flow and harmony that I learned the most. It was through the challenges, the mistakes, the failures. Welcome to Talks of Imperfection. In this episode, we meet Miami-based real estate and city district developer Tony Cho. Tony is leading the Future of Cities platform aiming to impact the lives of 1 billion people through innovations in the built environment. Tony shares his life journey from growing up in a communal ashram, becoming a nightclub promoter in South America, and eventually pioneering the city district development in Miami City and globally. In my books, Tony's success is very much linked to his healthy relationship with perfection and imperfection. My name is Risto Kulasma, and I'm your host at Talks of Imperfection, where we meet nearly perfect people revealing their imperfections. Our intention is to create an encounter where we learn and get inspired about what kind of role imperfection plays in our private and professional lives. Welcome to the show. It's a beautiful afternoon in Miami Beach. The first question. How Are you diving right in, huh? <laughs> how did you en encounter perfection first time in your childhood or youth? So this is a very interesting question that I had to think about. And to me, I think um, as I reminisce about my childhood, which was a very unique childhood growing up in a commune, in an interfaith commune started by my grandmother in the 70s who adopted me at birth, Um, were really just feelings of community and warmth and just complete kind of, um, you know, living in this bubble of acceptance and love and joy as a kid who was unaware of anything in the outside world. No, Not a lot of TV, not a lot of interaction with the world outside of the community. And, you know, I, I was born in 1978, so I grew up in the 80s, you know, so I did get to see Michael Jackson and Thriller when that came out. And those were kind of my connections to the outside world, MTV, you know. Um, but Christmas was a very special time for us growing up as kids because although we weren't religion, it, religious, it was interfaith, the concept behind the ashram. And it was, uh, you know, loosely a Hindu based, an ashram is usually Hindu based, but it was interfaith because my grandmother was a Jew from Coney Island. And Christmas time for me was the most exciting as a kid because we lived in a community of a couple hundred people and each of the communal houses were like co-living houses. You know, the main house where my grandmother lived and where we had our temple, where we had our gatherings every night was also like kind of Grand Central Station where all the activities happened. We slept in the temple floor for a period of years and we would always have these 30 to 40 foot Christmas trees, live, you know, spruce Christmas trees there. And, you know, as we got closer and closer to Christmas, the pile of of gifts just started growing and growing to the point on Christmas Eve, there was no space in this huge living room. It was only present. And I remember being so excited as a kid for just the endless amounts and sea of presents, you know, and just, I can always remember my excitement around the night before Christmas Eve. And, you know, the adults used to give us these stockings over the fireplace to distract us, to give them time to sleep in because they know <laughs> that if we didn't have something to do when we woke up at three in the morning, four in the morning out of sheer excitement, that we would be mayhem and we would be waking up the whole house. So there was this one Christmas where, of course, I got up at 3.30, 4 in the morning. I ravaged through my stocking, which had candy in it and all these kind of like smaller gifts. And then we all got together as the kids and started waking up the adults. Time to open up presents. Because each of us were assigned like an assistant <laughs> to help open the presents Ooh. because there was so much wrapper and trash uh -huh. and all this craziness. <laughs> and we were just like tear through all these presents and having like 20, 30 kids you know, all together, you know, opening up presents was just a moment of pure joy and there was just no other feelings. And so for me, the first feeling of perfection was that 
um, feeling of, of community and joy and uh, unfettered happiness and, you know, connected with celebration around holidays and family and all of that stuff. So I think that's probably my first recollection of kind of a perfect, beautiful memory, really. Because memories are all perfect at the end of the day. Whether they're good or bad memories, they, they are what they are. You accept them and it is what it is. It just makes the fabric of your life. Cool. Thank you for sharing. Sure. Pretty awesome. <laughs> so, how would you now nowadays introduce yourself? You have um, many pots boiling. <laughs> Actually, I'm reducing the number of pots. <laughs> I'm simplifying because yeah. less is more. You know, my mission is to impact as many people in the world as I can positively through innovations in the built environment. And the new company that I launched, Future of Cities, aims to do that. Uh, in the built environment, in the, in the space of, of regenerative and equitable and sustainable cities. So Future of Cities is really where I'm concentrating the bulk of my ambition and, and skills and resources and networks towards really open sourcing and accelerating this transition from the current extractive, um, unsustainable model of creating not only cities, but the communities that we're building these cities for as we go through a massive shift in, in, in human civilization from demographics to technology to you know, financial systems to governmental systems to all of it is really in flux. And in that flux is the opportunity for us to basically reinvent and recreate the new system as Buckminster Fuller had been talking about for many generations and uh, replacing the old obsolete system that just doesn't serve 100% of life. And I think we are in a very special moment. So I do have, you know, many different passions and investments and, and, uh, and initiatives, but really the core focus of what I'm doing at this moment is really through my activities at the Future of Cities and Chosen Retreat, which is our community, our eco-retreat sanctuary. And it's really, you know, what we call a camp for the humanity of the future. We can, it's a living laboratory where we're growing our own food and we have an eco-village in development and um, we're learning how to, how to live together more harmoniously in community and building on the example of my grandmother who was a leader of an intentional community and how do you bring that forward to the contemporary world in balance with you know the the modern world and i think that's really the key and i always had this debate with my grandmother is how to live in the world but not be of the world and to be in balance with the different poles because for me i i think my work is in cities you know but i really draw a lot of inspiration from nature and the idea from that is how do we bring in how do we rewild our cities and how do we bring in nature into the built environment to create the harmonious feeling that you feel in nature that's that's to me is the key on all levels wonderful we'll get back to those um practical things that you are doing right now but before that uh let's rewind um how did you end up to become a real estate developer and city builder <laughs> It's kind of a, a very um, unusual way that I arrived at this current place that I am in life. And it's all, everything is obviously was meant to be. And, and uh, you know, I believe that, uh, you know, there are, no, there are no mistakes and there are no, um, you know, there, there's, there's, there's no uh, surprises of why we are where we are. But I went to, when I left the ashram, the, the community I grew up in, Kashi, um, I went to school in Northwestern uh, in Chicago, in a northern suburb of Chicago in Evanston. And I found myself very out of place. I found myself very unfamiliar. It was freezing cold, pre-professional, Midwestern fraternities, kind of the antithesis of the community, warm Florida, in a very, very maternal, very uh, matriarchal, um, very idealistic, you know, there was, you know, a lot of embracing and tolerance around, you know, interracial couples and, you know, LGBTQ communities and HIV and AIDS it was very much presence in our life. Going to a conservative, somewhat suburban, cold, you know, uh, Chicago suburban university, although beautiful and very, um, you know, reputable, um, was very kind of, um, 
it was it was depressing for me in many ways um and so i ended up you know coming back to miami and wanting to spend time with my adopted father master susei cho who has been credited with bringing international style taekwondo to the united states in the 70s and having taught the the turkish army actually in the 70s as well was a guru in his own right and i wanted to spend time with him because i hadn't spent a lot of time in my childhood because he spent most of his time in miami and i grew up in central florida at the ashram and so i came here and then i got an internship at mtv latino on lincoln road at the 1111 building which is a theme in my life 11s <laughs> seem to appear a lot and i was blown away by the multicultural you know latin diaspora vibe of miami and i was very taken you know by all things latin latin women latin culture latin music spanish all of it and i decided to do an exchange program through uh, Butler University, which was affiliated with Northwestern. And I moved to Argentina uh, to do an exchange program, learn Spanish, very rigorous program. And uh, it was life-changing for me. Eye-opening, life-changing, mind-expanding, uh, really incredible experience. And after six months, I called my grandmother, the guru, and I said, I've got bad news for you. Um, unfortunately, I'm moving to Argentina I'm dropping out of school and I'm eating meat. And do you know what she was most offended by? <laughs> Could you imagine? <laughs> Hard to say. Maybe the meat. Yeah, it was the meat. <laughs> I mean, because obviously she was a guru and, you know, we were vegetarian. And I think all of it was, you know, it was a triple, you know, offense. But um, she tried to convince me and bribe me to you know, listen to her and to not, you know, stay in Argentina and to not eat meat and to not drop out of school. And I wasn't having any, and I really wanted to, you know, become independent from her, you know, incredible, powerful, um, you know, shadow essentially mm -hmm. in growing up. And so I said, no, I'm okay. I'm going to figure it out for myself. And she cut me off financially, which was a, a very pivotal moment in my life. I mean, if you talk about one of the most, um, challenging, but exciting moments, you know, on this tip of, you know, completely being excommunicated and, 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 and thrown out of my community and cut off financially to really being in one of the most ex ex exciting places in the world at that time. Argentina was the dollar and the peso were one-to-one. -one. Madonna was filming Evita. Menem was president and it was just like it was literally like 1999 like it was like party time all the time and everybody was doing well and the country was thriving mm. as artificial as that was created and fabricated for, you know from from the government but you know it was a it was a glory time for Argentina and so I was determined to find a job and to be self-sufficient and be independent from my grandmother and within two hours, I was in, in Buenos Aires, I was in downtown, and I went looking for an opportunity. And the first place I roll into is on the second floor of this, um, this building, and there was a striking, middle-aged, red-headed, beautiful woman named Vici standing at the top of the stairs, long Italian, you know, Argentinian, you know, goddess, essentially. And, um, you know, we started talking and I told her a little bit about, you know, coming from Miami and what I was doing there an exchange program. By the end of the conversation, she offered me a job to be the host of what turned out to be the number one restaurant lounge concept in Argentina at the time. And the first week, my, my, some of my first clients were Madonna and the president of the country. And so I started meeting the who's who of Argentina and Latin America. Next thing you know, one week I'm skiing in Bariloche for the first time. I'm in on yachts in Punta del Este. I'm in Carnival in Rio, and I was feeling no pain, <laughs> <laughs> making great money and having the time of my life. And that was the beginning of my life on my own as my own person, independent, self-sufficient with my own identity. And that was really, really important for me as somebody who is very strong headed, strong minded and a leader and an independent thinker, much like my grandmother. <laughs> and so of course, I don't think that that made my grandmother very happy, <laughs> but, um, you know, I continued on that path. And when I came back to Miami, um, I had the option 
to go back to the ashram. Because after a year, I said, okay, I had this experience. It was magical. What is next? And so I came back to Miami, you know, New Year's Eve, 1998. And I said, here are my options. Go back to Northwestern in the middle of winter, freeze my butt off, freeze my ass off. Go back to the ashram with my tail between my legs and beg for forgiveness. Or become a nightlife personality in South Beach <laughs> at the most exciting time in Miami Beach, you know, where I had just ex had the experience and the resume coming from Latin America, yeah. one of the best cities, cities in the world, with the resume of being a host in nightlife. So what do you think that I did? How old you were? <laughs> I was 19 years well, old. There you go. <laughs> no, not skipping meat. <laughs> So then next thing you know, I'm the host of Tantra uh, Restaurant Lounge on Pennsylvania Avenue in Miami Beach. This was the hottest lounge in Miami Beach. Al Pacino, um, LL Cool J, you know, Pamela Anderson, regular guests on a regular basis. I'm hosting them at 19. I'm not even old enough to legally drink alcohol. <laughs> and I'm serving Methuselahs of, of Dom Perignon and, and PJ Rosé you know, to all these celebrities and having the time of my life. And it was just magical. Next thing you know, I'm at Cannes Film Festival. I'm at Sundance Film Festival. I'm at the US Open. I'm at all these places as a personality representing Miami nightlife. And there was nothing at that point at 19 years old that was more fun or more magical than doing that. Wow. And then the third chapter, how on earth you found your way to real estate so it's yeah i think that the all of these you know not comparing myself to the buddha but much like siddhartha had the different chapters in his life mm -hmm. where you go through the spiritual the material the 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 hero's journey of establishing yourself gaining independence all of this stuff i kind of did it backwards mm -hmm. because i started out on the being force-fed spirituality meditation and yoga and then went into, you know, Sodom and Gomorrah's nightlife, you know, mm. material Kamala's garden experience where it was, you know, fast cars, fast life, money, you know, glamour, celebrities, that whole experience. But the, the interesting thread is that in every, comp any, every component of it, it was community is what tied everybody together. It was a beautiful community in Argentina. That was what kind of held me there in the nightlife and that it was and it was the community in, in South Beach in the 90s, which was very bespoke and underground. And it was a different Miami than it, than it is now. It's much more commercial and accessible and more homogenized. Um, you're a part of this kind of underground, cool crowd in Miami that we're always at the right places. You just you were just in flow, you know. And, but I knew that that lifestyle, you know, being up all night, you know, on the weekends and was in balance. And I said, there's, I was, I knew that this was a stepping stone to another opportunity. Hmm. So I got my real estate license in 2000, mm -hmm. 2000, and I started handing out my business cards. I joined a firm I started handing out my business cards and my vision was to be, to be a realtor to the stars concept, you know, mm -hmm. selling multi-million dollar residences, et cetera, because I was in that crowd. And the first apartment I sold was an apartment on Fisher Island. I made a big commission, said, wow, this is a whole new you know, reality for me. And you know, I parlayed my career into real estate brokerage from nightlife. And it was a very tough transition mm -hmm. because you know, when you're, you know, when you're the, the the king of fun or the, you know, and, and your responsibility is more around entertainment and, you know, having this frivolous life or access, you know, it's very different than being a serious professional and people relying on you to find them good opportunities and transact, et cetera. So that was quite a challenging transition because it required a much different kind of work ethic and much different type of consistency and focus mm. to convince people that you are a serious professional. And so that was a very, there was multiple transitions in my life that were very difficult. But then as soon as you broke through is when things started to take off. But mm. the transition is the difficult yeah. and having the faith through the whole thing. And I quickly learned that residential, high-end luxury real estate was not my calling. But it was the path to where I am today. Mm. Wow. 
what a what a story. Um, let's let's dive into the current affairs. Mm-hmm. Why why cities are so imperfect? Like why they are so unelegant, not safe? Why they why there's so much lacking? I think the short answer is poor planning. Um, you know, not enough resources and a broken system. And in the United States, unlike Europe, you know, all of our cities have been based on the automobile. We've designed around the automobile, all of our highway systems, all of our cities, unlike Europe, which was designed around pedestrians and horse and and buggy. Mm. And that's a completely different experience when, and that's why in Europe, everybody has smaller cars and you have these beautiful streets that there's more pedestrian focus, et cetera. So I think that if you look at the history of city building and kind of you go country to country or continent to continent, you can see where our shortcomings are. And a lot of it has to do with the current ideology and cities take a long time to plan and a long time to build and they're slow the the way that we've built buildings over the last hundred years with concrete and steel and going through the zoning process which is very cumbersome and very complicated really is a game of elite white men mm. predominantly around the world has not real uh, not is it has not been representative of the world at large and so that's why it's also messy because it's been designed for the one percent and when we start thinking of designing our cities for the 99 percent, the one percent will be just fine yeah. and i think that's really what we need to think about and so there the cities of the future will be designed and built much quicker with better materials more sustainably and they will be prototyped in the metaverse very quickly hmm. and it will be more participatory and more inclusive so the cities of the future hopefully will look a lot different than they do today but more importantly hopefully that they will function a lot better for a hundred percent of life and work because the success of a city is not only how thriving the humans are within that city but it's all of life the sea life in the ocean right now we have a crisis in biscayne bay with pollution <laughs> agricultural runoff um, algal blooms you know uh, biodiversity die off etc and if we don't get control of that you know some people you know in the concept behind regenerative development they rate the success of the city by the health of their rivers oceans mountains forests around it because if you're in balance as a city with the way you're managing your resources and your waste then you should not be polluting anything around you and to me as a resident of a city and also someone who lives on a nature preserve and i'm a retreat center is what brings me joy is the interaction the interspecies interaction with other animals and when we live in cities Unless you go to a zoo, you don't get to see other species. And it's very isolating. And it's also very self-centered. You know, humans become very self-interested and very self-focused and lose sight of the delicate biodiverse system that is perfect, you know, that that the world created through evolution. Mm. And we're disrupting that whole system by the way that we're living in cities. And the other reason why cities are so important is because within the next 30 years, 72% of the world's population will live in cities. And they're going to double in, in double or triple in size over that same time period. So it's a it's it's a historic once in a in a in a human humanity's lifetime opportunity to really change the game. And it's not only how we in, reinvent our cities, but how we reinvent our civilization at its core. So that's the opportunity. Just a small little opportunity. <laughs> Nothing big. And what I find fantastic in you is, is that you, you live as you preach. So um, walk us through the, the developments that you've done in, in the Miami area and the, in the um, Florida. So the Miami evolution was great because, you know, in 2000, 2001, um, you know, I was flying high in nightlife, traveling around the world, going to the most fabulous parties, you know, film festivals, fashion shows everywhere, Monaco Grand Prix, all of this stuff at 20, 21 years of age, um, living a very carefree lifestyle, you know, working two days a week, going to the beach five days a week. 
And then I got into real estate and it was a very abrupt, difficult reality check. And um, at that moment, Miami was starting to go through this transition of moving from the beach, which got expensive, to the mainland. And I was introduced to this Hungarian artist named Esther Giori, 65-year-old widow whose husband was a cardiologist at the hospital Mount Sinai. They had a penthouse at Portofino Towers here in South Beach. When her husband died, she, she sold the penthouse and bought a warehouse in Little Haiti next to where my project Magic City Innovation District is in Little Haiti. And she started dating this hunky, good-looking, you know, 30-something Jamaican sculptor um, named Osiris. And they would throw these wild warehouse parties, sex parties, and all kinds of crazy stuff. And I was introduced to the other side, or what I call the creative underbelly of Miami, that was not part of the model, celebrity, South Beach fashion world, but was this new emerging creative class in Miami. And that inspired me. And so I was never a real estate person. I, I mean, I was in sales, brokering deals, first residential. Then I saw how the defunct manufacturing warehouses from the 50 were like a blank canvas and how artists were recreating what happened inside of them. But then we saw the street artists starting to repaint the town of the warehouses in places like Wynwood because there was no oversight. There was no police. They were very dilapidated and neglected parts of town. And so I started getting very involved in the local street art movement and artists and was very much active in the Wynwood Arts District Association. And then, you know, really connecting street artists with landlords through our company, Metro One, which was really kind of a champion of independent businesses like Zach the Baker and Panther Coffee and Junior and Hatter and these types of really cool tastemakers within the cultural scene, the creative class, essentially. Um, which, you know, was also a movement at that time by Richard Florida, the, crea the birth mm -hmm. of the creative class, and it was very much a common theme. And so we were seeing this revitalization movement happening all over the world in urban cores that was really triggered by art and culture. And then much, you know, not too far along later, technology was kind of the third leg of that stool that really impacted. But the moment, the exact moment aha moment I had, how art and culture impacted real estate values and caused gentrification and dislocation, et cetera, was I bought an apartment in Biscayne 21 condo on the other side of the bay in Miami um, for $66,000 with 9,000 I had saved from the nightlife and a private loan from a loan shark in Hialeah at 11%. And then, and I knew that the Performing Arts Center would be announced very shortly, a block away. Mm. It was announced and boom, the whole area exploded just on the announcement, you know? And a year later, I sold that same apartment for $180,000. Mm. And I was like, wow, this is, I started to learn how these stories and these ideas manipulate values and change everything. And I, I, I learned kind of the hard way, the good, the bad of that, you know, the hype around marketing essentially. And then I saw when, when Facebook and Instagram started happening and people were taking selfies in front of the murals in Wynwood, how that exported this image of Wynwood and Wynwood overnight became this internationally recognized brand of street art. And it became, you know, one of the most recognized neighborhoods in the world. And being part of that journey was like another South Beach experience. And it was literally only a mile and a half away from South Beach. I was like, wow, how is it that I was in the right place at the right time and being part of it and pushing this vision along? And so, you know, people are like, how did you know Wynwood was going to be so great? And actually, people thought I was crazy up until recently. People are like, Wynwood will never happen. It's in the middle of nowhere. It's in the middle of the city. It's between Miami Beach and the airport. For me, it was completely logical. But 
you can't tell people you have to show them and then it's too late for them at that point it just was too expensive so people are like now people they follow me wherever i go now because i've, I've, I've made some good choices in the neighborhoods but now my focus isn't just about being in the right place at the right time it's having the most impact with that first mover ability um that i've i've been lucky enough to, yeah. to have have you had already a perfect development or is it even possible i don't i don't think that perfection is really possible i think that there's a lot of beauty in imperfection and um and and things that are organic organic and authentic and i think striving for your own version of contentment satisfaction uh, accomplishment excellence can be defined as perfection. I mean, I think if you if you live in the present moment and and you have gratitude, then every moment is perfect in its own right, in its imperfection. So for me, I think this pursuit of perfection uh, is a bit of a, a fool's errand because I think that inherently perfection is found in our defects and our flaws. And that doesn't mean you should accept your shortcomings, but what it means is that the process of your journey and your evolution is a perfect experience and there are highs and lows throughout those periods, but it's how you perceive those moments is what defines you as a human. And, as, and, 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 and honestly, for me, the most challenging moments in my life have really made me the human that I am today. It's not when things were easy or things were just in perfect flow and harmony that I learned the most. It was through the challenges, the mistakes, the failures. Mm -hmm. And one of the biggest ones for me was in the financial global meltdown of 2008, 2009. I was 27, 28 years old and I was flying high. I was, you know, I just opened up my new brokerage. I was, before then I was the number one commercial brokerage in a big firm of 500 agents. And I opened this big office next to Lenny Kravitz recording hangout studio in Wynwood at the warehouse. And I thought I was the cat's meow. I was the cool, I was the cool, coolest, coolest kid on the block. And then, you know, Bear Stearns collapse and the financial market implodes and Miami loses 50% of its real estate value overnight. The phones are not ringing. I had all of these loans that I was maxed out on all the properties because people were handing out loans like water, money like water. People would come up to me and say, hey, you can buy this condo and get money back at closings. So basically, you're getting paid to buy real estate. I said, something inherently didn't feel correct about this to me. And then, of course, those movies, Too Big to Fail and all the other things that came out showed what happened in the financial meltdown. You had, you had cocktail waitresses from nightclubs and taxi cab drivers who were all like speculating, I've got 15 condos, I've got deposits here and, you know, getting adjustable rate mortgages and everybody was in on the Ponzi scheme and it all fell down like a, like a house of cards. And I was badly burned by that. And, um, that was my first real lesson in, in, uh, in how markets change and, you know, being more conservative and, and being forward thinking and not just living, you know, day to day in the moment that's never going to end. The party's never going to end. Mm -hmm. And that was the moment, probably the lowest point in my professional career when everything was collapsing before me, when I met my wife, my current wife, Jimena, and I was losing my house in foreclosure. I had to get rid of all my cars. I had a Prius that I owned because I wanted to own something that wasn't finance. So I bought a Prius at auction that I still have today, like 12 years later. Ironically, it's worth more than I paid for. <laughs> and now the company uses it and we have it in an emergency and it's, it's the symbol of stability for me. And I was living in a one bedroom apartment with my wife and for a couple months she paid the rent and you know, she got in when the stock was low. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> what is the personal imperfection that you are working right now on? So for me, one of the personal in imperfections that I have is being more patient mm. and surrendering to the moment without judgment. I think that that's challenging for me. Um, I like things to happen quickly. 
and I like to, you know, have resolution the way that I want it when I want it. And, you know, having patience, um, is a real virtue and it's something that I, you know, have, have struggled with and work on on a regular basis through meditation and exercise and breathing and, you know, breath work and things like that. But yeah, I think that that's probably one of the things that I, uh, I struggle with. Hmm. And from that low point, if I look at you now, I've had the uh, pleasure to enjoy your uh, chosen retreat and it's been, you know, you live in an abandoned, abandoned world. What, what, what kind of spin you into the growth track from, from that uh, low point? Well, ironically, you know, financially, you know, I was devastated, you know, and didn't really have access to, you know, I didn't have any money. But what I had was experience, conviction, passion, and I was in the right place at the right time because being in Wynwood when the market crashed was the right place to be. And I was able to, because of my position, and being the number one broker and an investor in that neighborhood, people were coming to me. Someone once called me the rabbi of Wynwood. You had to come and pay the toll to enter. You had to pay Tony Cho the toll to enter Wynwood. <laughs> so, you know, one of the deals that I put together, which I was just talking to the guy that I did this deal with, was the Ducati building, which I had sold to my client and uh, before the pandemic, before the, the financial crisis. And then he decided to sell it to me because he didn't want to move forward with it at a very good price. And I didn't have the money to buy it. So I borrowed a hundred percent from another client and, you know, put to cobbled this deal together and it was at the bottom of the market and the market kept on rising and rising. So I refinanced and, and it was able to stabilize this asset. And two years ago I sold it for, you know, a very good price and, that was, you know, an incredible opportunity to really turn the right place at the right time into mm. an opportunity. Hmm. And that's interestingly linked to the um, to the imperfection you are working on. Like real estate is all about wait, it's a waiting game, right? Mm -hmm. How you cope with that with with all that passion and and um, you know, you need you need you want things fast, right? Well, I think, yeah, I, on the one hand, I'm not in a rush because, you know, the, the, you know, our first slogan of our first company, Metro One, uh, was we shape neighborhoods. Mm. And so shaping and being part of neighborhoods is not, you know, it's, it's not a, not a quick process. It's a slow process, an organic process. And so I've learned, at least in the professional real estate game, which is a slower game, to have patience, you know, and to believe in the long-term investment. It's not a game of just flipping and monetizing, et cetera, because then you're extracting quick value, but you're not leaving a lasting value on the community or an impact. And so now I'm investing in opportunity zones, which have a minimum time horizon of 10 years, which is very aligned with, and that's the minimum when you're really looking to build authentic, regenerative communities that you want to invest your time in to really be part of something and, and, and be committed to something. So I really believe that, you know, that taking your time and being thoughtful and actually can accelerate, you know, if you do things right, you get more support, you get more, more acceleration in your entitlements and getting approvals than if you just try to go and be a colonizer and, and ram down your ideas into somebody else's minds and thoughts. And I think for a long time, real estate developers have been neo-colonizers with their own ideas. They come into an underserved community, predominantly in this country, an African-American community, and they say, I want a country club here. I want a golf course here. I want a Ritz-Carlton here. But what does the community want? What makes you think that you're God and you can say, this is the best thing? It's maybe the best for your pocket, <laughs> but is it the best for the overall company? Is it for the overall city and for overall community? And I'm not you know, I'm not also a socialist either. I'm a social capitalist. So I believe in profit, but profit not at the expense of others or the environment. Hmm. And I believe that there's a way to do that if you actually care to accomplish that goal. Unfortunately, a lot of people don't have that ambition. 
Mm. Most people in the world are living hand to mouth and just trying to figure out how they're going to feed their family. So that's basic, basic subsistence and survival. And I don't blame people for doing what it takes to take care of their basic needs. But once you get beyond your basic needs being met, I think we need to start educating people. First of all, we need to work on making sure that everybody has their basic needs met in the world. We have all the resources and the technology to do that. Secondarily, we need to teach, which the next generation, we've been talking about this, I have ultimate faith in their intentions and their, their upbringing and their ideas that they will do the right thing. But the education that, you know, in order for us to have a sustainable regenerative future, we can't just think about our individual selves. We have to think about the collective and that it truly is in our personal best interest to think of others. <laughs> and once we learn that, you know, I think the world will be a better place. Mm. And once we can demonstrate that with data and science and facts behind it, I think, uh, and it's happening and we're seeing it more and more with impact investing and ESG focused uh, investments in companies and you know, all kinds of new structures that are being creative, that are gamifying impact. And it's a very exciting moment where we're leveraging technology to rewrite history. Hmm. That's a perfect segue to the perfect future. <laughs> Let's zoom out from Miami. I know you yeah. have a global mission. Right. How how you describe where where Future of Cities, your, your um, group is in, let's say, five years? What has happened? Well... According to the UN, the 20s, you know, 2020s to from 19, from, from 2020 to 2030 is the decade of action. And the reason it's called the decade of action is, is because if we don't take enough action by 2030 to achieve carbon neutrality of the new buildings, we're going to tip over that critical point of 1.5 degrees Celsius, which will trigger a whole host of catastrophic events that we may not be able to reverse or control. And so I think that the data and the science behind that is very compelling. If you read the IPCC report, I think most intelligent people can agree now that climate change is real and that it's not fake news, whatever you know, side of the political aisle you're on, the data is there, it's very compelling. And cities play the most important role in it. So. In five years from now, I believe that Future of Cities will have um, launched several demonstration projects in the United States, maybe in other countries as well, that will serve as models that hopefully will have been adapted, adopted in other countries and other cities around the world. And our framework of regenerative placemaking being used as a new framework and benchmark where we're open sourcing and sharing best practices in a way where we're accelerating this transition to a more regenerative future. So five years from now, we'll be in 2027, three years away from the end of the decade of action. And I would imagine that there will be examples all over the world of regenerative cities mm -hmm. and not one of them exactly the same, and which could, is the goal. Could you explain what it means that that model of city? So as you can see right now in current state of affairs with the Russian invasion in Ukraine and all the sad events that are happening in the world and, and what it's triggering, it's triggering a resource crisis, it's triggering a food crisis, it's triggering a refugee tr crisis, and it's you know triggering probably the acceleration of the meltdown of our financial system as we know it as new focus is being put on to digital currencies, cryptocurrencies, um, new methods of ownership, people going back to commodities and precious metals like gold and palladium and other things which are very valuable and used in our cell phones and semiconductors and all the things that we need and we're seeing runaway inflation, etc. And so what is needed for global stability is that we all become, that we become a self-sufficient society. So Each city, community, neighborhood needs to be responsible for its own cultural and historic identity. But the, the, the software you know, that runs these cities, the technology stack, is that every one of these cities should be self-sufficient, meaning not relying on imports or external 
um, resources to provide them with their basic needs. So electricity, food, water, waste management, etc. So the city of the future, the city state as we emerge and or we revert back to, um, will be a city that's completely autonomous from a data sovereignty, governance standpoint, etc. self-regulating, almost like its own decentralized autonomous organization like a DAO and be able to provide for all of its citizens and be self-sufficient, be you know, producing its own energy, be producing its own food through local networks, regional networks of farms, et cetera, green roofs, vertical farming, rainwater catchment system, producing energy and things like wind turbines that are, or, or actually water turbines that are in the sewer, you know, and other new technologies that we are going to be investing more and more as we see more dislocation and instability in the global macro marketplace of what's happening. And we saw it through the pandemic where we couldn't rely on imports. China shut down, India shut down, the port shut down because of, of the pandemic. This kind of instability and reliance on other countries is going to become such a, a, a pain point for the world that more and more people, that's why people are moving to Costa Rica and farms and eco-villages. They want to you know, live self-sufficiently, autonomously, decentralized, you know, have their own sovereignty. And this trend is going to continue. And digital currencies and blockchain is going to help that happen very quickly. This is the most disruptive time and technology I think of our era is going to be web three and blockchain. And that is going to help us transition. And it's not going to be an easy transit. There's no transitions that are easy. But I think that to me, I can't tell people what the city of the future looks like, because those are all based on cultural and historical and geographic and environmental concerns that each city and community and resident need to co-design themselves, but using the best tools available, the best technologies, the best practices, et cetera, and sharing information, open sourcing these things. It's no longer, we're getting, you know, th th we're in such a crisis that we're getting past this post-capitalistic, post-competitive world and moving into an era of cooperation, collaboration, public-private partnerships, you know, cross-sector collaboration at scale, because without it, we're screwed. That's a compelling prophecy. What, what do you think, what is uh, blocking it? Why it's not already happening? And what will be the kind of uh, hindrances on the way to this vision? I think the main thing that's blocking the transition is lack of education, complacency, and it's not serious enough yet. We're not we're not feeling enough pain. The 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 developed world, we all live in a bubble. We're completely brain dead with social media and distracted that we're not present and we're not living in the present moment. We're living in some other virtual reality, which I think is very unhealthy if it's unchecked and not balanced with a healthy dose of being in the natural environment, being outside, breathing fresh air, not staring in front of a screen. It's not the, it's not the dystopian future that I imagine for my kids. And I spend average four or five hours a day in front of Zoom calls. So I want to temper that as well and figure out what is the best way to move forward. And I think we have to go back to the ancient technologies of our ancestors, of the indigenous people who used ritual and ceremony and plant medicines and other things that are now disappearing because we're not paying attention to them. We're just raping and pillaging and, and conquering and manifest destiny everywhere and clear-cutting forests and rainforests and without regard to the biodiversity that has all the medicines to heal us in there. And so I think we need to really get very serious about preserving that biodiversity, getting very serious about creating cities of the future that are regenerative and sustainable and protecting, you know, green space and wild space and biodiversity around the world. And that's why the parallel argument or thesis or movement to the future of cities movement is the half earth movement, which is also happening, which is aiming to protect, you know, 50% of all the biodiversity as wild protected land conservation around the world because humans should not be expand beyond 50% of the landmass. Also, the earth is, is covered by 70% water. The oceans cover 70% of the earth. And 
we can also develop through projects like oceanics you know un habitat project you know civilizations on water so that we don't have to ruin habitat for animals and species anymore because we've already you know basically um expanded beyond our sustainability and you mentioned education as a part of the part of the big picture and that's obviously important one um you have a plan to build a school what would be a perfect school if and when you would be the headmaster <laughs> it's very funny because you know I, i grew up in in the ashram and i went to school at a private school that was founded basically because as a response to the discrimination bigotry and racism that was very prevalent in the public school system in central florida in the 70s and 80s and in florida in general and you know this was a not a lot of resources so not not a big science lab and no sports programs except for martial arts and things like that but the one-on-one -on -one education that i was afforded and that i had with amazing teachers of kind of arts and sciences etc i think gave me the foundation that i needed to be successful in the world and in other places and i think that you know if you treat every child and every student as an individual it's the same thing as medicine you know and 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 modern modern medicine and and, and treat them as an individual with an in individual um chemistry and composition and capabilities and you create an environment where they can really thrive and pursue the things they're passionate about i think that's the ideal type environment i think teaching kids about being self-sufficient growing their own food permaculture concepts indigenous wisdom in addition to math science technology all the things that are relevant in our world but also being able to know how to make things themselves being a maker being a creator encouraging that creativity outlet because i think so many kids and adults are missing that beautiful part of their life is their creative side that hasn't been encouraged because everybody's been encouraged to just be a spoke in the wheel to make money that's the that's been the ambition and the goal of capitalism is to optimize each human to be the most productive financially but that doesn't make the happiest human So optimize for happiness. So Amen. my school would be the happiness school. Happiness <laughs> school. That's interesting. What would be your advice to young, the youth out there who are um, trying to find the perfection in real estate? Like if you look at back, back to your youth and your beginning of your real estate career, what would be your advice to your younger self? I think my advice to any age in particularly is really it's important to reflect on your actions because life is short and it's very precious and if you're just focused on the destination you'll never enjoy the journey and so having presence and having gratitude for every step there was I mean my whole life I've been so blessed to have all these diversity of experiences of jobs of experiences and even now going through stressful experiences with partnerships that are not non-functioning and you know other things that you experience in the regular course of business it's always to have a perspective on the moment and really to reflect and not just run through life unconsciously without thinking about what you're doing but are you passionate about what you're doing do, are you do, does this have an impact in your lives and others is it just a selfish pursuit or is it going to bring you closer to other people and what is what is what brings you joy in life and really to focus on designing and engineering and optimizing for joy i think that's what i think you're getting a picture but it took me 43 years to get to this point because you know we're now embarking on starting a family and and many people say wow that's so late in life but we did many other things like travel around the world together as a couple with me and my wife and you know really get to make you know make strides in business and really solidify a proper financial foundation and other things that can really help pave the way for 
a stable and healthy um, future, you know, with, with really where you're eliminating stress. And I've been studying a lot about blue communities where you have the highest concentration of centenarians, people living longer than a hundred years, but not just living, living quality of life that has meaning and purpose. And some of the common threads that they're finding in all these communities around the world, where you have, you know, these, these older populations that are living to be, you know, well over a hundred years of age is the low amounts of stress, the sense of community and purpose in your life, obviously diet and sleep, uh, taking naps seems to be a common thread, having, you know, a couple glasses of wine. It's the Revesterol or in that's in the wine. You don't need the sugar that's in the wine, but I mean, you could take the capsules, but I honestly think the, the practice of having a glass of wine with somebody is really is savoring the moment. And it's like smelling the roses. And the more that you smell the roses and savor that glass of wine, the sweeter I think your life is in general. And the sweetness, I think, is what in many traditions, in the Jewish tradition, they pour honey on the bread and other things, is the sweetness, if you can bring in that into your life, I think makes for a richer, happier, sweeter life. And so, you know, life is filled with many challenges and obstacles and suffering and failures. And if you can see the opportunity in each of those moments and have perspective and have gratitude for the growth that you get out of them, I think you'll live a happier, more purposeful, more meaningful life. And how it's, how it's happening in your future life? I mean, you are about to, about to get into the family life and uh, how you see yourself living in this perfect future. Again, I don't believe in perfection. And I always told my wife that, you know, why she loves me is that I'm almost perfect. I'm not perfect. <laughs> so I have a healthy ego, which I've also worked on. And I, I have a lot of confidence in myself. And I think that had a lot to do with my upbringing and living in community and, and, uh, and, and self-love, I think, is really important. Um, not being too hard on yourself, but driving yourself so that you push yourself for ex excellence. But... I think if you strive to be the best that you can possibly be and be disciplined and um, have a practice, whatever that practice may be, whether it's a sports commitment or a writing practice or a musical practice, whatever that is, meditation, breathing, I think having something that you're developing and, and, uh, and growing helps you become a peak person. And so I think that As I get older, what I learn more is that less is more in simplifying because enjoying the moment without having so many distractions is a luxury. And the new luxury, I think, for the next, you know, 10, 20, 30 years of my life is the luxury of time, mm. of being able to determine what I want to do with my time and not just, you know, pre-pandemic, anytime we got an invite to go wherever for a wedding or a party or a birthday or this or that, we're on the plane, we're going, we're moving. And it's just, it was, it was beautiful and, 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 and magical in many regards, but it's exhausting and it wasn't fulfilling long-term. So I think perfection for me is balance and, and being in control of my own time. What I want to do, and when I look at my schedule for the day, you know, when people want to fill it up with meeting after meeting, I say, no, I don't, do I need to be at this meeting? Is it really relevant for my personal happiness and success and joy? And prioritizing health and well-being at all levels, mental, physical, spiritual well-being above accomplishment or whatever that means or above, you know, moving the ball forward in any business venture, et cetera. And I think the more uh, happy you are, you know, the more successful you are. So to me, optimizing for happiness is a measure of success. And there is a um, beautiful, beautiful example of, of creating this kind of happy environment for yourself. Um, walk us through the chosen, what it is all about. So... Chosen is um, an eco-retreat sanctuary, which is our home 
in central Florida on the banks of the St. Sebastian River, adjacent to Kashi Ashram, where I was born and raised, um, adjacent to a 22,000 acre nature preserve that's one of the most biodiverse lagoon systems in North America that connects to the ocean, which is known for its surfing beaches, etc. It's one of the last areas in Florida that is nature focused and protected with bird sanctuaries and other things. It's really under threat by overdevelopment, um, subdivisions and clear cutting trees. And so I'm kind of on the front lines of this, you know, unfortunate, uh, victim of its own success of Florida post pandemic, where so many people have moved here that there's such a demand for housing and real estate that it's out of control. And so our, we call it a camp for the humanity of the future. And we have glamping domes and tents and we host uh, summits and impact retreats and nature-based and wellness-focused retreats. And we have an incredible farm-to-table chef, Chef Colin. We've got uh, Terry and my brother Suse that are running the sustainability and the permaculture and adventure side of the programming. And really creating our perfect environment of sustainability, community, and it's a demonstration project. We're growing some of our own food. We have a senior care facility that's part of the project. We're doing retreats. We live there. You know, we have a, a, a mini spa and gym where we're focused on wellness and building a wellness team over there where we can really um, help heal people on all levels. And so, you know, chosen is that, um, it's that, um, that, that, uh, it's that container for wellness and healing for us. That's all about taking all of that we've learned, basically integrating the knowledge from growing up on the ashram to being in nightlife to, you know, real estate development and doing it in a sustainable, regenerative way. It's the counter demonstration project to an urban neighborhood and how, if you're going to develop an eco village or a retreat center, what is the most regenerative way to do it? And we're prototyping, you know, solar panel systems like the Tesla tile solar roof, which we have a 44 KW system in the property, which is one of the first of its kind. And it provides 85% of our energy, uh, through solar power. And, um, we have gray water biofilter cleaning systems. We're putting in uh, rainwater catchment systems. We're employing permaculture practices to produce, uh, you know, a lot of our own fruits and vegetables and herbs. You know, we can catch our own fish. At some point we may have livestock and, and have chickens and goats and cattle and other things to be able to produce, you know, have our own milk and eggs and things like that. So it's really about, you know, it's, um, we, we, what, what the, the mission of chosen is really to bring thought leaders and change makers into a sanctuary in nature where they can reconnect with their source, which is nature, which is all of our source detox, digital detox from the world that we live in and the hamster wheel. And they can be inspired to go out and impact the lives of millions and millions of other people that they influence through their various businesses and others. And we've had incredible leaders there from Deepak Chopra to Bjarke Engels recently for a UN Habitat retreat. We've hosted some really important summits and uh, it's a privilege to really be able to hold space and watch magic emerge. And it's really not, you know, hopefully it'll be financially sustainable at some point, but our mission is really not about making money there. It's about creating an authentic, um, safe and, and beautiful container where community, authentic aligned community and impact is emerging in balance with nature, which is a beautiful thing. Beautiful. Last question. What makes you excited about the day ahead when you wake up? So, um, I think the things that make me most excited are actually more of the simple things these days. Walks in nature, going into the ocean, spending time with family and friends, um, going out on the boat, 
with friends and family and sitting by the fire and, 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 uh, sharing moments and sharing meals together. So, you know, at one point in my life, the thing that excited me most was going to a gala or, you know, a, a big party or being on a yacht or on a private plane or something that was new and fresh and exciting. And the, 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 you know, the, 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 the excitement of that has really dissipated for me and I'm really kind of coming back to my center of what matters most. And really it's about living in the moment and being of utmost service and being able to grow and learn and then share the gifts, the talents and the treasures and create beautiful containers um, to bring, you know, heart centered and, you know, brilliant minds together to really work on co-creating a more equitable, regenerative future for all of humanity and really having, you know, building this, um, this global community of, of like-minded heart centered people that are doing really incredible things around the world and just being constantly inspired by them is what motivates me. The more, incredibly brilliant people who are brilliant, but also who care is what inspires me forward to also push me to be the best that I possibly can be and be the best version of myself. And so I'm excited for, you know, the next chapters of my life. I'm 43. I'm turning 44 in 2022 and celebrating my 11 year wedding anniversary on 11, 11, 22. So it is a big year. And if I look at my Vedic astrological charts, there's a lot of things that are coalescing and it's definitely a transitionary year in the world and in my personal microcosm. And, um, I'm very excited for the next phase of my life, which I envision is going to be much more balanced, much more integrative, uh, for many years in each phase of my life, when I was at the ashram or when I was in nightlife or when I was in real estate, I kind of disowned my past and didn't want to have anything to do with it. And I'm finally in a place in my life where I'm fully embracing all the beauty and all the brown spots of my past and doing it with humility and, and vulnerability because it's all beautiful and it is what it is. And the more you embrace it and accept it, the more you are a whole person. And I think that, that that's a more holistic, appropriate. You know, I'm not just a real estate guy. I'm not just a, you know, a community person. I'm not just a, you know, an intentional community person and, and uh, you know, a venture investor or a real estate developer. Those are all stories. You know, I'm a human being that's had many diverse experiences. I'm learning just like everybody else. And I'm trying to make the most impact, you know, in, in th those around me, but for the greater humanity as well. Thank you. That's it. No, nothing to add. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Risto. This is really uh, a wonderful conversation. And I really am uh, inspired by the the uh the the topic and and how um it really gets you thinking about in, in a way that you don't normally think about perfection and imperfection so um thank you thank you thank you for listening to the talks of imperfection the podcast is enabled by Edita Prima, the kindest Nordic tech company that orchestrates automated customer journeys to perfection by turning data friendly. That's all, folks. It was good to have you on board. Please subscribe to the podcast, follow us on Instagram and hold tight until the next episode. Mm.